Tonight we're in Ezekiel chapter 38, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. Definitely want to make sure you're reading in the scriptures with us. I know that sometimes when it comes to, to prophecy and things like that, you know, it can, it can be all opinion. And I will tell you, the last thing that you need tonight is my opinion on prophecy. You, you need to know what the Word of God says. And uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into this amazing prophecy. And Father, we thank you for your Son. Oh God, we're so humbled to be part of your plan, and God, that you have, by grace, revealed yourself to us. God, through the conviction of your Holy Spirit, you've drawn us to the repentance of our sins, and to trust in Jesus as our Savior. God, Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your providential plan in our lives. Thank you, God, that you have knitted every detail of human history together. God, it's not as if these events are just randomly happening. God, you have ordained the end from the beginning, and you are worthy of our trust and faith. And so, God, give us the ability through your word to see events for what they truly are today in our times. Stir us, God, with a a readiness, a watchfulness, because we know our Savior is returning soon for us. And God, help us to to be engaged. God, tonight is definitely not about gaining more knowledge about the end times. It is about being part of the army of God. And so we pray, God, that you would speak over these dry bones and that you would cause them to come to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I think it's a reasonable question to ask, and maybe some of you, some of you have this question on your mind. Why are we studying end times? Why is there an end times update during during Passion Week, you know, during a time where we're really commemorating and considering the sacrifice of Christ, uh, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, for some of us tonight, it it might kind of feel like an odd fit. Uh, And so let me just say to you, I just want to remind you uh, of really the reason why we are focused on prophecy tonight. Uh, and there are two reasons. I have a lot of twofold things happening tonight. So, so reason number one is this. The whole Passion Week is about fulfilled prophecy. Like the whole week. You can't get away from prophecy as you're considering the, the triumphal entry of Christ all the way to his resurrection. In fact, Jesus himself said, and you remember the story, and I don't want to get sidetracked tonight, but he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas came with the temple guards, and then his disciples were like, hey, maybe we should pull our swords out and do something about this. And Jesus said, don't you think that uh, if my father wanted to send 12 legions of angels right now in this moment, that he would? But all things must happen like this so that the word of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so it is absolutely appropriate for us tonight to be focusing on prophecy during the Passion Week because the Passion Week is all about fulfilled prophecy. We'll talk about some of those in just a minute. But then in addition to that, for those of you who are students of the Bible, 
you know that during this week, Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples talking about end times events. And, and the reality is this, sometimes, sometimes we are rightly focused on other things. You know, it's not, it's not that we're wrong in this. We're rightly focused on other things so we don't necessarily spend time considering the Olivet Discourse. You know, Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, you know, that whole segment of time where Jesus was laying out to his disciples things that would happen in the near future and things that would happen uh, in the far future, in the end times. And, and it is important for us to consider that each of the synoptic gospels contain some part of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, of course, that discourse was talking about the destruction of the temple that would eventually happen in 70 AD. The bulk of it was dealing with uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ and what the signs of the times would be before he would come again. And then he spent a lot of time, he took all of that eschatological information that he loaded into his disciples during the Passion Week, you say, well, what day was it? It was Tuesday of the Passion Week that he laid this out to his disciples. But then after he downloaded all of this data and information, and of course, probably blew their mind, right? And that wouldn't even be fulfilled until at least 2,000 years down the road. You say, is it important for us? Well, yeah, was it, if it's important enough for Jesus, then it's important enough for us. But then after he downloads all the data, he gives two really uh, strong parables about how the disciples should respond to the word of prophecy. And we're going to talk about that uh, later on because, you know, sometimes I think, and this is a concern of mine, sometimes I think when it comes to eschatology, end times events, you know, we're interested, they're intriguing, they're spectacular, and, and sometimes it just gets boiled down to information or data that we know with no real application, and we fail if that's all that happens when we're talking about end times events. Um, I think one of the most amazing aspects of the Bible is prophecy, and of course, how about you guys? You like prophecy? When I, when I say prophecy, of course, you know, there are different meanings to the word prophecy. For the most part, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about declaring forth what God has said. Uh, but then in addition to that, we're also talking about um, God speaking things that will be fulfilled in the future. And one of the things I love about that aspect of prophecy is that all of God's prophecies are very specific, right? They're not vague, they're not generalities, they're bold, they're precise, they're absolutely perfect. Like you can expect that when you're considering the prophetic element of God's word, you can expect them to be absolutely perfect. And you say, well, well how, how can we have that expectation? Well, because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, 9 and 10, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, right? So before it's even happened, God can say exactly how it's going to happen. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I, I hope you're blessed by that, that word tonight from the prophet Isaiah. 
And God says, hey, listen, the truth is this. It is easy for me. It's easy for me because I'm omniscient. I know all things. And I'm going to let you know ahead of time what's happening because at the end of the day, everything that I have purposed is going to come to pass. Let me say it like this. God can predict the future better than we can recall the past. God can predict the future better than we, and I don't know about you guys, but the older No, thank you. No, it's we, okay? It is we. The older that we get collectively, like, it is just harder and harder to remember information, isn't it? I mean, I mean it can be something as simple as your keys or, or whatever. It's a, it is kind of a family joke that dad forgets just about absolutely everything. And it is, it is getting, getting worse. Thank God. Thank God that he can declare and predict the future better than I can handle the past. I want you to think about this from just the perspective of the Passion Week because there are so many prophecies that were fulfilled uh, during the week that we're commemorating. He, of course, came into the city of Jerusalem um, on the colt, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, uh, Zechariah chapter 9-9. He was betrayed by a friend. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified. His clothes were gambled for. Not a, a, a bone in his body was broken. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, and he was resurrected on the third day. That's just, that's just I think, eight or nine prophecies that were specifically detailed out concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so let me say to you, if the word of God with respect to prophecy has been perfect as we consider the first coming of Jesus Christ, I will tell you it will also be perfect when we consider the second coming of Jesus Christ and all of the events that will precede it. Now, if you were with us last year, during our prophecy update, um, we looked at four signs that would precede uh, the coming of the Messiah, four signs really that were like birth pangs that would precede uh, the seven-year tribulation period. Um, and as we considered these signs last year, obviously they, they were for sure prevalent then and they're prevalent now. We talked about how there would be uh, an increase in the frequency of plagues. Don't say amen to that tonight. We saw sign number two, that there would be ultimately a united global community. There is no doubt that, that in a global sense, we are on a high-speed course to fulfilling that. Uh, we looked at how there would be biological integration of technology, and the, the advancement of that no doubt has been, has been exponential. The fourth sign that we talked about was that there would be a global economic in interdependence and definitely with, you know, with COVID-19, uh, we saw aspects of that being developed um, also in an exponential way. I'm going to tie uh, what we're going to talk about tonight to those four signs. And I'm going to say the fifth sign that we're going to consider is the battle of Gog and Magog. And this is definitely relevant to us today, you know, as within the last 45 days or so, we have all witnessed... Um, a dictator ruler uh, in Russia invading a, a sovereign state that we call the Ukraine, that's known as the U Ukraine, and many people, like it's, it's not that I'm mentioning something for the first time that's just uh, never been mentioned before. There are many people who are like, well, well, wait a minute, you know, pump the brakes for a second. This really looks like uh, a biblical prophecy coming to pass, 
You know, that you have this particular leader that seems to, in some way, in some way resemble the leader mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38. You have this leader who is moving in an invasive, premeditated way, um, not just seeking to rule dictatorially over the country that he's in, but, but now almost in an imperial way, taking other countries as well. Uh, people like Greg Laurie have, when all of this happened, of course, he had mentioned, we, we better really be considering the, the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 38 and 39. Joel Rosenberg, of course, who is uh, an expert in these matters, has mentioned the same. Uh, and of course, I, I believe they mentioned, they mentioned it in balance, kind of like, hey, we need to keep an eye on this to see how it rolls out. Pat Robertson, on the other hand, went as far as to say, this is it, this is God, God is doing this, and, and almost implied in a way that if you somehow stand against this, then you're standing against God. And um, we'll talk about that later on, but in my, from my point of view, I do believe that he went too far. Can we make the connection? Like, with what we're seeing today, can we really make the connection with what is con contained in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So tonight what we're going to do is, you know, I, I will tell you on the front side, there are aspects of this prophecy that are extremely complicated. And um, we will talk about that particular element uh, that, that I don't think anybody can necessarily definitively nail down. But on the other hand... Uh, a lot of what's contained in this prophecy is not complicated. And I think as we walk through this kind of step-by-step, verse-by-verse, you're going to see how simple this is really to interpret. Now, for those of you who are students of the word, and, and you know, I, I, I say Gog and Magog or Magog, however you want to pronounce it, I say, you know, we're going to read about that in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute, because... Gog and Magog is also mentioned in the book of Revelation um, at the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the millennium period. Remember when the devil is released from the bottomless pit and he goes after Christ has reigned for a thousand years, he is, Satan is released and he deceives the nations that are called Gog and Magog and they come up against Christ and his people. And the Bible says, of course, that fire falls from heaven and destroys all of them. And so, are they the, the same thing? And the answer is no. Definitely do not confuse the Gog and Magog in the book of Revelation, which really, uh, and this is just my opinion, is, is kind of archetypical, right? It's, it's not necessarily literal nations. We're talking about all of those nations that had um, allied themselves against the nation of Israel and each of those nations would be found in the table of nations in the book of Genesis. So they are two different things. Let's check this out together. Let's jump into it. The Bible says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So let's just, you know, we've got... We've got uh, someone who's called Gog, he's a prince over Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and um, he is over the, the land of Magog, which is comprised of the, those three different areas. 
and say, so this is God's word to him through the prophet Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord, God, behold, I'm against you. So God clearly is not for this guy, whoever this guy is. O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So that's the first piece of this. The second piece is there's a, a confederacy. Persia, Ethiopia, maybe your uh, Bible says Cush, and Libya, maybe your Bible says Put, are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops. We're not talking about Gomer Pyle here. Gomer and all of his troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. So, uh, let's, just, let's just break this down a little bit today. Uh, point number one, we're just gonna go through this and see if we can check the box. We're talking about an evil ruler who creates a coalition of nations that are determined to des destroy Israel. That is just a simple interpretation of this. I wanna remind you that in the end times, there are two battles. Now, I'm not talking about the end of the millennium. I'm talking about uh, somewhere around the tribulation period, sometime before the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is the battle of Gog and Magog, and then there's the battle of Armageddon. Um, I will say to you, my perspective is they're two different events. There are some who consider them to be the same thing. But as we read this, this is what God is simply saying. Ezekiel, tell this character who rules over these places that I am against him and that he is ultimately going to devise an evil plan. You know, this is according to my sovereign purpose. I am going to be putting hooks in his jaws and I'm going to pull him down from the far north. And we're going to talk about the geographic location of this in just a minute. But we're not talking about, uh, when we're talking about this prince of Magog, we're not talking about a location that is just within the vicinity of the nation of Israel. We're talking about somewhere that is far north, directly north. And so God says, I'm going to put hooks in his jaws, I'm going to pull him down, and then in addition to that, he is going to create an alliance, a political, military, economic uh, war machine that will be united against the nation of Israel. That's simply what we get from these six verses. You say, well, who, 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 are these, who is this guy? Uh, where are these places? Uh, hold your horses. We'll get there in just a second. Spoiler alert, right, this is not contained in these verses, but the truth is that God had intended all of this because it was the purpose of God to judge this individual, uh, to judge his land, and to judge all of the nations that were in confederacy uh, with him. And ultimately, God would magnify himself. Now, from a Jewish eschatological point of view, uh, many Jews believe that this particular battle is going to precede the coming of their Messiah. Uh, and of course, we know that this battle is going to precede the coming of our Messiah, but it won't be his first coming, it'll be his second coming. And what they think is the first coming of the Messiah is actually going to be the second coming of our Messiah, but God is going to enlighten their eyes and pour his Holy Spirit out upon them. Magog is the land of Gog, or the land of this prince. And what we see in verse 2 is it's comprised of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. So where is Rosh? Rosh, 
I believe definitively is Russia. And I want to give you the reasons for that tonight. There are linguistic reasons to conclude that Rosh is Russia. First of all, uh, simply that Rosh or Rush was the original name of Russia. And then in addition to that, all Hebrew scholars will um, definitively say that this particular word uh, refers to the nation of Russia. In addition to that, from a historical point of view, when we're talking about Magog, uh, remember Magog was the son of Japheth. Japheth was the son of Noah. And so Magog was the grandson of Noah. And after the flood, Magog went and populated a particular portion of territory. The Greeks considered Magog to be equivalent with the, Syri the, the Scythian people. And so from a historical point of view, when we're talking about the people of Magog or Magog, we're actually talking about the Scythians. And the Scythians ruled from the Black Sea all the way to China. Now, if you pull your map out, and I, I will pull a map out in just a second, but if you, if you just look at the map and you chart from the Black Sea all the way to China, what you recognize is we're talking about modern-day Russia. And, and listen, not only that, but Hesiod, who is the father of Greek poetry, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel, he also identified the people of Magog with the ancient Scythians. And then Flavius Josephus, who was uh, a historian, um, circa 100 AD, uh, did the same as well. And then in addition to that, if you talk to Russians who know their history, they also identified themselves with the ancient Scythian people. Um, so we have linguistic reasons to believe that we're talking about Russia. We have historic reasons to believe that we're talking about Russia. And then there's a geographic reason as well. In verse 15 of chapter 38, and then in verse 2 of chapter 39, uh, the Bible refers to these people coming out of the land uh, that is from the far north. And like I said, if you just point the arrow north of Israel, as, as far north as you can get without going to the North Pole, you're talking about Russia. So Meshach, we got, we got Rosh. Are we, all, are we good with Rosh? Meshach and Tubal, uh, remember just from your, your study of Genesis that they were also grandsons of Noah. And there are two different views as to where these indiv individuals ended up uh, populating, what, what geographic location they ended up populating. The first and probably the most po prominent view is that they also went into what we would call today Russia. Meshach would be the area of Moscow, and Tubal would be around the area of Tobolsk, which is a, which is a, a current Russian city. The other view is that Meshech and Tubal uh, populated modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. Uh, and I think, listen, there's differences of opinion. Ethnologists would say, people who study uh, societies and cultures and, and they track the migrations of people. Some people say, no, we're really talking um, about the area of Turkey when we're talking about Meshach and Tubal. Um, the greater body of scholars would say, no, we're still talking about Russia, um, probably the area of Moscow and the area of Tubal. When we think of Russia today, we think of one large country, but remember, in ancient times, it was broken up uh, and segment, segmented into various people groups. 
So we've got Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Who is this individual who was called Gog? By the way, Gog is not his first name, all right? Not like Joe or Frank or Jim or, or whatever. Um, and, and what a horrible name that would be if you called your kid Gog. I mean, there are great Bible names, don't get me wrong. You know, like Mephibosheth. Maybe tonight you guys are, you're a couple and you just found out you're pregnant and, and you might have a boy. I would suggest Mephibosheth. But it's really hard to sign, so, you know, it might not be good. But this is not, a, this is not like a name. This is a, a title that's given, uh, and a title that is like a princely title, or a title that refers to, to royalty. Um, and, and I'll talk about this in just a, a minute. Maybe even possibly a title that refers to somebody who is wielding great power in a dictatorial sense. So Gog is an individual who is over Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Um, maybe we're just talking about modern-day Russia. Maybe we're talking about Russia and Turkey as well. He is an evil, let's just, let's just lean into modern-day Russia. He is an evil Russian leader. Sound familiar? He is an evil Russian leader um, who rules as a dictator. Right, almost in a kingly sense or a princely sense. He is absolute or has taken absolute power. And, and obviously, uh, alarm bells are going off in your mind right now. But it's not just his country. There's a confederation as well. This just gets so intriguing. God says that there's going to be a, a, a handful of nations that, that join uh, this individual who's title is Gog. So verse 5 says we're talking about Persia. Uh, we are talking about Cush, or maybe your translation says Ethiopia, uh, Put, or Libya. And then in addition to that, later on, we've got Gomer and Togarma. So where are these places? Well, Persia is modern-day Iran. So up until 1935, uh, Current-day Iran was actually called Persia and had gone by that ancient name for literally thousands of years. And so, hey, this is not a big step because we see today that, that Russia, one of the key uh, confederates or alliances that Russia has is with modern-day Iran. And well, what about Ethiopia? Or, like I said, your translation may, may actually say Kush. Uh, most people agree that Ethiopia is probably an incorrect translation. That's not the word that was used in the ancient Hebrew. Uh, the, the word that was used was, was Kush, and so translators just wanted a modern equivalent to place in there. Uh, most commentators believe today that we're actually talking about Sudan and maybe possibly uh, parts of Ethiopia. Uh, put is an easy one because ancient put is modern-day Libya. It might have been a little bit larger. I'll show you the map in just a moment. Uh, and Gomer, uh, not an easy one to identify, but a lot of people believe we're talking about that area, that tract of land that is just beyond the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, that might be um, Kurdistan and, and all the Stan countries. I'm not going to go through them right now because I'll just butcher the names. Togarma. Um, commentators believe, and, and historians do as well, that we're talking about modern-day Turkey. So, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at an evil uh, Russian ruler who is going to bring his country in an all-out uh, offensive attack against the nation of Israel. He's going to have a confederacy. 
so it'll be Russia. Uh, if you look to the left at the brown, we're talking about uh, Libya and, and possibly even because that area was in ancient days well beyond Libya, maybe Tunisia, maybe Algeria. The, the yellow, of course, is the Sudan. Uh, over, uh, you see Iran in the orange, and the, then you see all of the stand countries, would, which would have still been ancient Scythia, so we're not far off there. And then Togarma, or if your preference with Meshach and Tubal is to say Turkey, you have Turkey as well. All of those countries are going, going to be allied together, uh, and they are going to uh, seek to totally wipe out and destroy the nation of Israel. Now, let me just tell you that we're living in a time where those alliances are actually currently in place. I mean, this is, this is from the perspective of world history, a total and absolute historical first. There has never been a time, I can tell you definitively, there has never been a time when all of those nations have been allied in some sense. Now, some of you, you keep up with the news and you're like, well, wait a minute, Turkey isn't totally on board with Russia in the invasion of Ukraine. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but they, they're not adversaries. And listen, for many years, Turkey was an adversary with Russia and Russia was an adversary with ancient uh, Persia. And so, so what we see, and, and a lot of times when we're talking about end times events and geopolitical issues, of course, remember that Israel's always the epicenter. Like you're going to be viewing uh, current day's events through the lens of what God is doing with the nation of Israel. But remember, God is also causing other nations in a geopolitical sense to be prepared for this moment as well. So point number one, we have an evil Russian ruler. Are you guys still with me, by the way? Okay, we have an evil Russian ruler uh, who is a prince or a dictator. He is in alliance uh, with these particular countries. We can check that box for sure. Verse 7, check this out. Prepare yourself and be ready. By the way, <clears throat> I did get ahead of myself because God hasn't even necessarily mentioned Israel yet. Verse 7 says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited when? Oh, come on, y'all. All right, so we've got a time marker there. In the latter years, you will come, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Which had long, he's not done, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So the second thing that we see here, actually let me just, let me go back real quick. I'm gonna leave it there. Uh, the second thing that we see with respect to point number one still is that we're not just talking about any place. We're talking about the, the nation of Israel, the actual land of Israel. And in fact, there, there is so much fulfilled prophecy here. There's a time marker for us. We're talking about the latter years or we're talking about the end times. 
You know, the time that, that is really representative of God wrapping up his dealings with humanity. So this is far, far in the future. And then in addition to that, we're talking about a people that have been regathered from the diaspora. They had been sent to the four corners of the, of the earth in a, in a geographical sense. And now they've been miraculously drawn back. They had been, they had been um, dispersed by the sword... Right? I mean, it was a, a violent event or a, a series of violent events that caused their dispersion. And now they've been miraculously gathered back after they had been exiled from the land for such a long period of time. And we're going to talk about how amazing this is in just a minute. But we can check that box too, right? We've got a regathered nation of Israel. By the way, that's just happened within the last 70 years. Aren't you privileged to be living in the times that you're living in right now? And, and then in addition to that, we know uh, that we, we are hitting on the time marker, right? We're living most likely in the end time. So listen, we can check that box too. The timing for sure is right, and the nation of Israel is in place. The second thing... The second thing that I want you to know tonight is that there are also current incentives for the invasion of the nation of Israel. Now look, I think is, we for sure can be talking about uh, hypotheticals. Like, well, it's interesting that there's a confederacy of nations and they're allied together right now. First time in human history that that, is, that, that has happened. Uh, but really, what's the incentive? Like, what would be the driving force for all of them you know, to have a common reason or at least some incentive to, in, to invade with the intention of destroying the nation of Israel. And I just want you to think about some of the incentives that have existed for some period of time. Listen, I have said probably over the last seven years that my personal feeling is that Vladimir Putin is a, he is um, a great potential for the Prince of Rosh. I mean, he just has been. He ha it's not as if within this last year he has done things that have somehow made him to be, um, you know, an appealing option for the fulfillment of this biblical character. No, he's been setting himself up over the course of time. We've talked about how long he's been in office and how much power he has been able to accrue unto himself. There's no doubt that he has imperial aspirations. And of course, since you've been watching the news, we've all been hearing this over and over again, we know that it's his, his intention to reunify the Soviet bloc. In fact, he himself said this. He said, the disillusion of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. Do you know what that means? So as he looks at the last 100 years, from his point of view, the worst moment in the geopolitical history of the world was when the Soviet Union dissolved. You say, man, what is driving this in individual? He's just totally insane. He's a madman. Maybe he's demon-possessed. I say, well, you know, that's a possibility for sure. For sure the first one and possibly the second one. But then in addition to, to that, listen, he wants to, he wants Russia to regain its former glory. And it's not just going back to Soviet times where it's Mother Russia with uh, Soviet bloc countries. He wants to rule and reign like a czar. And he has taken steps towards that. He annexed the Crimea, he crept into the Republic of Georgia, and he has just invaded the Ukraine. 
And I will say to you, if you think for one second that he's planning on just stopping or finding a convenient excuse, you know, to stop this military action, then you really don't understand the character. I mean, he is literally hell-bent on gaining more territory and restoring Russia to its former glory. So there's not just that imperial aspiration that he has, but in addition to that, the scripture says that God is going to draw him down with hooks. He is going to be drawn, and we see this also in Ezekiel 38, uh, 12 to uh, 14, that he's going down not just to destroy the nation, but to totally dominate. I mean, he wants to plunder. It's, it's possible, some of you know this, that there was this love, um, huge gas field called the Leviathan gas field that was discovered uh, maybe four or five years ago off of the coast of Israel that Israel was able to gain control of. I mean, enough natural gas to supply Europe with natural gas for a long period of time. And there are some people, you know how... Um, natural gas and oil is such a, a commodity that Russia has. Really, that's how they're funding the current invasion of the Ukraine. He is hungry for those types of assets and resources, and it's possible that one of the hooks that's going to pull uh, him down, if in fact it is Vladimir Putin, is that he would be able to seize this Leviathan gas field. You say, well, what about the other countries? What about Iran? What about Sudan? What about Libya? What about Turkey? What do they have in common? Well, they're Islamic nations. They're Islamic nations, and it's possible that they are going to forge an Islamic alliance. I just want you to consider some of the things that have been said against Israel by militant Islamic people in the last handful of years. Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization uh, that's funded, by the way, by Iran, uh, has said that Israel's disappearance after the next war is an established fact. And so the fundamental goal that they have is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Iran's former president has called Israel a dirty microbe and a savage animal that will soon disappear with a flash. Possibly in his mind, he was thinking a nuclear flash. The commander-in-chief of Iran's army had predicted that millions will soon rejoice in the joyous news of Israel's destruction. And so, hey, there, there is uh, propaganda out there that, that would lead you to believe that there's no intention for these radical Islamic organizations to destroy the nation of Israel, but these are, in fact, their own words. And then in addition to that, uh, their eschatology would also lead them into this type of alliance. There is something within Islamic uh, eschatology. There's a group called the Twelvers. Some of you have, have heard of them. They're the biggest religious faction in Shia Islam, and they believe that they can hasten the coming of their Messiah by destroying the little Satan. Who is the little Satan? Israel is the little Satan. Now, of course, there's some difference between the eschatology of the Shia uh, Muslims as compared to the Sunni Muslims, but they have a lot of things that are similar as well when it comes to their Mahdi. Who is their Mahdi? Their Mahdi is their Messiah. And they believe that their Messiah is going to come. He's going to come, their Mahdi. Let me just use the word Mahdi. He's going to come. He's going to come on a white horse. He's going to 
come in a time of great confusion and, uh, and, and great difficulty. When he comes, he'll slaughter every Jew and he'll establish his peace, his global peace, for, for some seven to nine years. Then he'll die and Jesus will return. This is, this is their eschatology. Jesus will uh, descend to the Mount of Olives. He'll go to Damascus and then in some sense, the, their Mahdi will be resurrected and Jesus will bow before the Mahdi and proclaim Islam as the one true religion. So, so, in addition to that, what they say is, and this is a common refrain, let the world be bathed in blood that the 12th Imam may come. And so I say all of that to say, uh, for the Islamic Alliance, there is a real legitimate incentive if in fact their eschatology is uh, leading them in this direction. And unfortunately, unfortunately there, there is within the history of the church, the Crusades, you know the Crusades were uh, a result of unbiblical eschatology, a view of end times events that was not rooted in the word of God. And so is there precedence for, for people groups taking uh, religious end times events and seeking to fulfill them in their own efforts? There absolutely is. I'm not equating today Islam with the historical church. I will tell you that both of those were absolutely wrong. Some of you who are familiar with modern day events say, you, you might be just saying, well, well, hang on just a second because what about the Abraham Accords? You know, what about the Abraham Accords? What about the seeming alliances that are being developed between Israel and some of these Muslim countries, Sudan being one of those countries that recently, in a covert way, undercover, they did not want this to be broadcast for sure, uh, but they, they, they uh, signed into the Abraham Accords. Uh, and listen, it's a, it's a good thing to consider. And how, how does that work out? I don't necessarily know but what I do know is as they polled the people in the Saudi Emirates, uh, in Bahrain, and then also in the Sudan, what they discovered is while there was a portion that were for the Abraham Accords, the vast majority of people were not for them. And those particular countries, Saudi, uh, Saudi and the Emirates, and then Bahrain, are Sunni Muslims. And so even though there may seem to be some alliances that are being developed with Israel don't think for a minute that it represents the um, opinion of the majority of the population. So listen, let's just go back. Uh, evil Russian ruler in alliance with uh, the countries that are uh, mentioned, yes. Timing is right, check. Uh, nations are aligned, there are incentives that are present in each of those different nations. We can check that box as well. Well, what about the third thing? That there are, there are signs, and we see that there are signs that will ultimately precede this particular battle. I want to read, starting in verse 10. Thus says the Lord, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Circle that verse because that's going to be a big one. Why, are, why 
are they coming? To take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, we're talking about uh, cities that are just north of Israel, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? So the third thing that I want you to think about today, the third box that we have to check, are all of the signs that will precede the battle. And we're given three specific signs that will come to pass either before the battle happens or when the battle does happen. The first one is this, Israel must be present in the country, right? Israel actually must be present. So listen, the battle of Gog and Magog could not have happened before May 14th, 1948. I mean, before May 14th, 1948, the Jewish people did not have a homeland. And it wasn't until that moment where the United Nations made the declaration that the Jewish people could come back to their homeland. Of course, the land was broken up into segments or sections between uh, current Jordanians, who would ultimately be called Palestinians, and uh, the Israelis or the Jewish people. But listen, it was 1,800 years before the Jewish people would actually have a homeland. There was no Israel for these confederated nations to, to invade. And listen, I would say to you, I've said it a million times, I think this is one of the most significant miracles that has happened in our generation. When you think about a people group that have been dispersed, it's the technical term is the diaspora. When you think about a people group that have been dispersed for 1,850 years and yet they have maintained uh, their language and they've maintained their customs and in some sense they've, they've maintained their culture and their religion, it has never happened before. From my uh, studies and research, a, a, a nation that has been dispersed has never lasted more than three generations. And yet, what do we see? We see these, these scattered people regathered. And you know, you can go back later on and read chapter 36 and chapter 37 because both of those chapters are all about how God in the end times is going to regather his people. You know, how God is going to Breathe on that valley that is filled with dry bones. And Ezekiel saw with his own eyes, those, he heard the bones rattling. And he saw the sinews and the muscles. And then all of a sudden, there was this standing army that God resurrected a nation. I want to remind you tonight that God can, if God can resurrect a nation, God can resurrect you. God can handle the difficult issues in your life. God can resurrect you when you taste of death. The sting of death can be gone because you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so you can be in a place where you know that the victory of death is gone because it's been swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can be in a place where you don't fear death because you're trusting in the resurrected Messiah, the real Messiah. But li listen, in addition to that, and we're gonna get into this on Sunday, he'll bring you spiritual resurrection. He will take your life that might feel, it may feel like your situation or your circumstance or your addiction 
or the, the painful situation that you're going through has had the final word. But listen, the truth is this. If you trust him, he has the final word. And he can bring spiritual resurrection. And he can break the chains of addiction. And he can form and shape the circumstances in your life so that you can know that everything in your life is ultimately fulfilling the sovereign providential purpose of God because he loves you that much. He does. He does. Israel must be present in the country. And of course, listen, we can check that box. The nation exists. It has been rebuilt in an extraordinary way. Uh, I want to encourage you, when we announce it, our trip to Israel in March 2023, you should go with us and see it with your own eyes. The Bible says here that Jerusalem has to be reestablished. We know that that's happened. And the Bible also says that Ezekiel 38 verse 8, verse 12, chapter 39 verse 27, that the nation is going to be isolated and the nation of Israel is, is isolated today. So there are three key things. Number one, the Jewish people must be present in the land of Israel. We can check that box. Israel must be prospering. Israel must be prospering. There must be a blessing on the land, on the people of promise. And that's what's conveyed here as God is speaking to the prophet. And as you go back in Ezekiel's prophecy, this is what you discover that God said would happen. He said in Ezekiel 36, verse 6, I will multiply upon you man and beast. He's talking about the nation prospering. They shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So you can check out Ezekiel 36, verse 6 to 11, verse 24 to 32, and then Ezekiel 37, verses 9 to 14. Because there was so much that was prophesied about not just the rebirth of the nation, but the increase and the prosperity that God would bring, and God has. You know, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. I had the just great privilege of standing in Shimon Perez's office, you know, he was a prime minister of Israel. I was there in the center of peace and innovation. And as they walked us through this amazing center, it was just overwhelming to see how Israel has advanced in agriculture, technology, in medicine, in education, in humanitarian efforts. Like we're talking about a nation that has just been reborn within the last 70 years, and now it leads the world in almost all of these areas. There's only one way to explain that, and that is, that is by saying that God is the one who has done it. So listen, check number two here is that we see for sure that Israel is prospering. The third thing is this. Israel must have peace in the land. Israel must have peace in the land. I told you to just uh, keep your eye on this verse, but I want to go back to verse 11 real quick. And it says this, You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and ha having neither bar bars nor gates. And bars, we're not talking about like Las Vegas bars. We're talking about like, you know, bars. So, so listen, this is where I have, uh, this is where I pause Right? We got a lot of checks happening tonight. Everything is looking good. Here, I, don't, I can't check this box. I can't check this box yet. And, and listen, there are some people who do. I'll tell you why in a minute. 
But this is what, what God says. God says that Gog, the prince of Rosh, is going to say, I'm going to go up against, uh, against a land of unwalled villages. Well, that certainly is not the case. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell in, safely, who dwell in safety. That definitely is not the case. Look, we just got back from Israel and there have been so many terror attacks on the people. Uh, and I'm not talking about just Jewish people. I'm talking about the citizens of Israel, some of who are Arab, and, and, uh, and then also people who are Palestinian as well. And, and so, listen, they're not dwelling in safety. Uh, all of them dwelling without walls. That for sure is not the case. They've erected walls, uh, and they've had to just to protect themselves and having neither bars nor gates. So some people say, listen, this is fulfilled because we're talking about is the Israeli military superiority. I mean, there's, in that region, there is no military that is as superior as Israel. And so really, we don't necessarily have to take these details literally um, because it's kind of, you know, just an all-encompassing thing. And I say, well, I, I can't do that because we've taken every detail literally up to this point. And so why would we not uh, with this as well? Modern-day Israel does not fit this description. And you know, the truth is this. Um, it's, it, it, it might be heading in that direction, uh, and it may happen soon. I don't know how it's going to happen. I do know for sure that they're going to make, Israel is going to make a, a covenant with the Antichrist for seven years. And that particular individual is going to be wise. He is going to be possessed by the devil. He is going to be a smooth talker. He is going to be able to build alliances. He is going to be able to solve unsolvable problems. And there is going to be a time of peace. And so, so how that works with respect to the Antichrist, I'm not necessarily sure. But up to this point, I would say, I don't think that Israel is in a place where this particular prophecy can, can be fulfilled in this moment. You say, well, when will it happen? Well, there are four predominant views about when the battle of Gog and Magog happens. Uh, there are a whole bunch of people who believe it's going to happen before the rapture and before the tribulation. So obviously, that was a loaded statement because, you know, as I say that, I'm saying that these people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And so, which, which I do personally, is my conviction. We don't make a denomination over it, but it is my conviction, all right? So these people say, listen, it's going to happen. Before we're raptured, these things are going to take place, and we're going to see these uh, events with our own eyes. There are others who say, well, listen, it's probably, prob I use the word probably intentionally here because they all say probably, it's probably directly after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, I, I just want to, I want to draw your attention to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 9, because everything else I'm going to say is, is tied to uh, this verse. And, and just real quick overview of chapter 39. 39 is the judgment of God against uh, the prince of Rosh in the confederacy of these nations. That's verse uh, 1 all the way to verse uh, 20. And, you know, as you read these verses, you can read them later on yourself. It really does look like a nuclear holocaust. It just really does. The cleanup process 
is, is uh, so specifically detailed out here, um, it just does seem very similar to the process of having to clean up after a nuclear battle. Uh, but check this out. Then those who dwell, verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make, by the way, I think it was a javelin missile that just sunk that Russian ship. That's for another time, though. The javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. For seven years. So we have a seven-year cleanup period, right? What does that mean? Well, if we believe that we're talking about this war happening before the rapture and the tribulation, then there's a seven-year period of time where that cleanup can take place. If we're talking about maybe just after the rapture, if you believe in pre-tribulation rapture of the church, then that still affords for that seven-year burning of the weapons, the cleansing of the land. It also, listen, both of those views also um, help us to see how the table might be set for the Antichrist because it would eliminate uh, Russia and, you know, that communist stronghold that exists ge in a geopolitical sense with so many other nations. And then it, then it would also eliminate that Islamic confederacy as well uh, because there's no way that Islam in its current Form is going to fit into the one world religious system, right? So, so possibly we're looking at those two options. The other two options, some people, a lot of people believe we're talking about the midpoint of the tribulation. So there's a period of peace that's been instituted by the Antichrist, and then this war happens. The problem with that is it doesn't afford a seven-year period of time for the cleanup afterwards. And then the fourth option is we're actually talking about the Battle of Armageddon when we're talking about uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog. It's the same battle some people would say. The problem that I have with that is, again, uh, it, there's not a way to accommodate for that seven-year cleanup period. There are problems with all of these options. And I will tell you, this is the most complex part of the prophecy. This is the most complicated part, and no one can definitively say when it's going to happen. I personally believe it's either going to be number one or number two. What I do know for sure is the outcome is God's glory, as that is always the case, right? What is going to happen? <laughs> Clap like you mean it. Look, verse 21, you, you've got to check this out. It's so solid. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I've executed, and my hand, which I've laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. And then down in verse 29, And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. So God says, listen, this is why I've done it. Yeah, it was, it was to judge these nations and this evil leader, but ultimately, I'm declaring my great name. I'm glorifying myself. I am putting all of my infinite perfections on display for all people to see, and I'm fulfilling my covenant promises with the nation of Israel. In this 
sense. I'm pouring my spirit out on them. And the people who did not know me will come to know me and to love me. I want to remind you that the purpose of the tribulation period is to awaken a nation, is to awaken the, the nation of Israel. God is not done with Israel. Like we talk about the, the preserving hand of God from a, from a theological point of view, and the greatest example of that is the nation of Israel. God will not fail his promises. And we're, what we're going to see, and my view is we're gonna watch from heaven, is we're going to see a mighty outpouring of God's spirit on the Jewish people. There are 144,000 that will be raised up. There will be two witnesses that will be preaching in the city of Jerusalem the everlasting gospel. There will be four angels sent to the four corners of the earth. The Bible's not saying the earth is flat. We're just talking about in a global sense. And the gospel will be proclaimed. It is another miracle that leads to the glory of God. You say, listen, why? How does this impact me then? Jesus, during the Passion Week, he said this. He said, when you see a cloud, he was talking to the crowds. He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there's going to be scorching heat. Sound familiar? And it happens. And then he says this, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. Right? And so what is he saying? Listen, there was sufficient evidence. When he was descending down the Mount of Olives on the triumphal entry, the Bible says he wept over Jerusalem because they did not know the day of their visitation. All of the information had been given by God, but they had become so di disconnected from the word of God and so focused on the tradition of man, which was fundamentally the fault of the religious leaders, that they didn't even know when their Messiah was coming. And they missed it. They missed it because they weren't ready. They weren't ready. Listen, when Jesus lays out the end times events, speaking to his disciples about things that are gonna happen in 2,000 years, he gives them an exhortation that was for the present moment, and the exhortation was watch, watch. Listen, don't lose your spiritual edge. You should be living on the proverbial edge of your seat spiritually when we think about end times events and we're living in the last days and there is the imminent return of Jesus Christ he could come back at any moment it should provoke us it's a spiritual wake-up call church like it's, it should it should wake us up spiritually it should shake us up it should be like man there are warning signs and bells that are going off in our heads and we're like man we, I better need to make sure I'm ready I need to make sure I'm ready. Listen, this is the problem that I have with being over-focused on eschatology because there's a big segment of our church that just loves the data. They, they're just interested. They're intrigued. It's spectacular. And there's all of this information and there's zero application. I mean, these people could draw you a timeline of what's happening in the end times of events and yet they have no spiritual edge. Their minds are filled with the word of God and there's no real application in and through their lives. I'll tell you right now, that's not why we talked about these end times events. This for us is a wake up call. It's like, man, he is coming anytime and we need to make sure that we're ready. We need to be the two parables, the virgins, Five prepared, five unprepared. Five believing the bridegroom was coming. Five thinking, eh, he's gonna postpone. 
you know, he, he's just going to postpone. Like, we're, we're all right. We're good to go. Then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. Listen, what, what, if, what if he knocked on the door right now and said, hey, you got an hour. <laughs> I'm just saying, not everyone is Zelda. Not, I'm with you, and I know you are. But not everybody is. He'd be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need, to go, I need to go clean out my house. I need to wipe my hard drive, right? I need to delete some text messages. I need, I need to burn some books and some, some magazines. I need to clean up some, some unforgiveness and some, some grudge holding. And, and I, I, need to, I, I need to communicate some truth where I've been talking about lies. I need to go through my social media and I need to wipe out all the gossip. Hey, that, that, that's going to take you more than an hour. I'll tell you that right now. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if he gave us a warning and said, you got 60 minutes, what would you change in your life? What would you change in your life? And I, all I'm saying is this, we ought to be living in a place where we can say, nothing, I'm ready. I don't, I don't need to change anything. It's not that I'm perfect. I've not reached perfection, but I, I don't, I'm not living with skeletons in my closet. I'm ready for the coming of my Lord. My eyes are lifted up into the heavens because I know my redemption draws near. I'm not done, all right? And I know I've gone over. But listen, it's not just that parable. It's the parable of the talents. Now, he gives the parable of the talents right after he talks about these eschatological events that we're living in. And, and essentially it's this, what are you doing with what God has given to you? What are you doing? Right, one was given five, he invested the five. One was given three, he invested the three. One was given one and he buried it. He buried it because I knew you to be a shrewd master in your dealings. And God said, man, it's gonna be, it's gonna be held to your account today. Listen, what, what are you doing with your spiritual gifts? What are you doing with the calling of God on your life? What are you doing with your relationships and the roles that God has placed you in? What are you doing with your resources, your treasures that really belong to God that he's blessed you with so that you can bless other people and invest into the kingdom? Why? Because listen, we don't look at eschatological events and do nothing. We look at these events and we do something. I, I honestly, I get tired of people pontificating about Ukraine and, 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 and Putin when they're doing nothing. It's like, hey, that's great. That's what you think. But you know what? Get off your butt and do something about it. Are you praying? Are you praying? Are you praying for the people of Ukraine? Is your heart burdened? Do you even care? Do you just watch the stuff that's rolling on TV and, and on the internet? And you're like, well, there it is. You know, there's my eschatological event fulfilled and you're not even broken over what's happening? Or you're foolish enough like Pat Robertson to, be, to, to present it in a way where it's like, well, this is God, you know, this is God and don't stand against it. No, I don't think that's the heart of Christ. Look, no, we ought to be praying. We ought to be supporting organizations that are helping those people. And then we ought to be going ourselves. We've been called to bring the love of Christ into every circumstance. And a right view of eschatology leads us into it because fundamentally we know that Bible prophecy teaches us that God loves us. Like in other words, God is saying, hey, um, I've, I, I've dialed this in. I have 
com conveyed it and communicated it to you so that you can know I'm sovereign, so that you can give me glory, and so that you can know I have a plan and it is for your good. Listen, that's all I have to say tonight, all right? But, but, yeah. But let's, let's leave this moment, let's leave this moment really asking God to touch our hearts uh, in a way where we have concrete application. If we don't do that tonight, we'll have been a waste of time. Let's ask God tonight, and, and maybe in our time of prayer, you know, there's just gonna be good conviction that comes from the spirit that leads to repentance, which is a gift from the Lord. And Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for your word, and it's just beautiful. God, it's intricate, and it's God-breathed. Thank you for the things we don't know, because it just reminds us, God, that in the mystery of it all, your ways are so far above ours. And if we could figure it all out, God, it wouldn't have been your book. We trust you, God. We trust you. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and as we're just wrapping up our time together, there are, I'm really strongly compelled tonight to ask two questions. The first one is this. Have you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in the real Messiah? Are you ready are you ready? If he came back for his people tonight, would you be in that number? Can you sincerely and honestly say tonight that you belong to God? And listen, you don't get there by your good works. And you don't get there by coming to church. And you don't get there by giving $5 to the homeless person who's on the corner of 215 and Rainbow. You get there by putting your faith in Jesus. He is the only way to God. And this is good news because listen, you came in broken. You came in spiritually dead. You came with burden and grief and shame and tonight you can leave transformed. Tonight you can leave spiritually resurrected. Tonight, you can know that you belong to God and you can be part of God's eternal plan in the best sense if you would just turn your heart to Christ in, in belief, believe on him. The Pharisees said, what, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent speaking of himself. And so tonight, if you've never put your faith in Christ, we want to give you that opportunity this evening, and I want to pray for you tonight. You just say, Pastor, that's me. I want to believe tonight. I need Jesus in my life. I want to know that I have a right standing and a relationship with God. And so tonight, if this is you, would you acknowledge that that's you by just simply raising your hand tonight? Stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are. You need to put your faith in Christ. Maybe tonight as a, a Christian, like honestly, sincerely, total, totally transparent tonight, 
you know, man, there's, if, if he said, I'm coming, there's some stuff. There is sincerely some stuff. And it needs to be addressed. And tonight, you know that this is how the Spirit of God works. God loves you so much. He's identifying those things tonight. He's speaking them to your heart and to your mind right now. Don't turn that voice off. That is the loving voice of God. And he's leading you to that place of preparation so that you can live with real anticipation. Not, not thinking in your mind, Lord, I just, I hope it's not today. That we shouldn't be living in a way that compels us to think those thoughts. And tonight, if, if this is you, and I am not gonna, I'm not gonna have you say what it is, but tonight, listen, there's something, there are some things. They might be minor adjustments, they might be major. But you know tonight, Christian, that you need to lay them down and you need to, there's things you need to turn away from. And then there are real solid concrete applications for you to make as you walk forward in your relationship with God. And so tonight, if this is you, would you raise your hand tonight? I wanna pray for you. Thank you and you and you and you and here and on my left. Thank you so much for raising your hands. Just stretch your hand up high. God bless you here in the front. Over here, there's spiritual renewal. God bless the two of you that God is gonna bring to your life tonight because this is what God does. This is what he does in the house of the Lord. Anybody else? I see your hand in the back. Over here on my left. Thank you, it's awesome, thank you so much. Right here and here. Over here on my right. I just, I feel compelled tonight to, to say this. Maybe your marriage is, you know, you're, the two of you are responsible to have a relationship that is God-honoring and God-pleasing. And, and tonight, that's just not the case. It's good that you're here in church. But you know that there's some real changes that need to be made. Would you just submit your marriage to God tonight and, and let him bring the healing and the forgiveness and the renewal. Tonight, if this is you, would you raise your hand? Thank you and thank you. God bless you and I see your hand. It's awesome. God loves you so much. And you can put your hands down. Let's all stand together tonight. Father, thank you. Oh God, thank you so much that you speak to our hearts and and we want to be prepared, we want to be watching, we want to be ready because we love you. God, not living in the, the fear of the moment that you return, but, but like Zelda said, with great anticipation, longing for that moment. And so Father, I will pray for these by saying we, Lord, please cleanse our hearts. Cleanse our hearts and cleanse our hands. God, we lay down our sin and our offense and the areas that we have struggled in and stumbled in and accommodated in our lives. God, those things that we've been deeply convicted over that we know you're displeased with and yet, God, you love us faithfully still. And because of your love, oh God, we give you our lives. 
Father, I pray that there would be a holy fire that would fall upon every heart tonight, that you would consume the areas of sin that we've yielded to and give us strength, God, to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and God, also to bring your gospel to this needy world. In Jesus' name.